Morning, church. Well, today, our study of 1 Samuel is going to point us to a truth that we so often forget. Today, our study of 1 Samuel, as we look at this, it's going to point us to a truth that we so often forget. The lesson has to do with where we find solutions to the biggest problems we face in life. We live in a day where violence is on the rise, where any minute we're going to be potentially dragged into a massive world war, where economies are collapsing, where people are depressed, lost, scared, and their marriages are on the rocks. Where do we find solutions to these things? Where is salvation to be found? Salvation, dear friend, is found only in God's rule as king, not in human structures. That's the big idea. Salvation is found only in God's rule as king, not in human structures. You know, in, in Hebrew literature, that's what we're looking at now. It's in English, but in Hebrew literature, you can't, they didn't put this into Microsoft Word, so you can't highlight it, underline it, and bold it. But what you can do is you can repeat a theme and like a roundabout, circle back to it again and again and again. That's what we see here in 1 Samuel 9, 10, and 11, is this motif of deliverance, save. Open up your Bible, I'll prove it, I'll prove it. Look at, look at your Bible now, 1 Samuel 9, 16. 1 Samuel 9, 16, the, the Lord's intent is to, for the king is to save his people from the Philistines. Look at 9, 16. 9, 16. Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the land of the Philistines. Now go to chapter 10, verse 19, where it says, God is the one who saves you from all your distresses. Look at chapter 10, verse 19. Remember, just think about a roundabout now. We're, we're, just keep, it's gonna, we're just gonna keep coming back to this idea of save, save, save. You ready? Chapter 10, verse 19. But today, you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. Go to... Chapter 10, right there, verse 27. Because these guys, these blokes, these scoundrels, these troublemakers, they, they, doubt, they doubt the king's ability to save them. Look at chapter 10, verse 27. 
But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? You see that? Now go to chapter 11, verse 9. Chapter 11, verse 9, the, the people of Jabesh-Gilead, they're promised salvation. Look at chapter 11, verse 9. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. You picking up the theme? One more, eleven thirteen. Chapter 11, verse 13. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Three chapters with the word save echoing, reverberating throughout them. Three chapters and the word save is just stitched through all three. Or as one commentator put it, the narrative is haunted by the word save. Salvation is found in God's rule as king, not in human structures. That's the big idea. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know this is your word, and we ask not only for an understanding of its meaning, but for a spiritual grasp of that meaning in our hearts. Lord, cause our minds not only to be flooded with your light, but our wills and our affections. We pray that by your spirit, you would shine your truth into our hearts this morning, Give us the light of the knowledge of your glory shown in the face of your Son. And it's in his name, the name of Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So, apparently that's a picture of him. That's pretty 80s, bro. Well, well done on that one. No, I love you, but anyway. So, um, so whenever you read stories in the Bible... Uh, particularly uh, Old Testament stories, um, you have to keep in mind, keep this in mind, the author can't include every single detail. If that's going to be, is that too distracting? Everyone keeps looking at it, bro. You might want to just make it blank. I don't know. Everyone keeps looking. Yeah, yeah. There we go. That's probably better. I mean, I'm sure that was really cool in like, you know, Bible flanograph in your day, but like that was, you know. So, um, so whenever you read an Old Testament narrative, you have to ask yourself some of this, okay? The, the author can't say everything. You with me? So, so you picture the author of Samuel, authors of Samuel, uh, they, they can't say everything. And that day, uh, you know, uh, Samuel woke up and after his pita bread, he, you know, had a drink of water and after, I mean, you, you can't include everything. And, and he had a headache. And then he went to bed, and the next day, and you just, you, you, you just, you can't, you can't put everything there. So what are the authors doing? What are they doing? They are divinely inspired, but they are selecting and deselecting information to put in there. 
So what we have before us is sacred history. Nevertheless, it's interpreted history, if I can dare say that. In other words, this is not just reporting facts. Here you go, here you go, here you go, here you go, here you go. It's interpreted facts because the facts that are in here, there's a theological axe to grind. The author is wanting you to know something. So it's not just throwing out information. It, it, there's a purpose behind it. Are you with me? There's a lot of selection and deselection. I say all of that. Why do I say that? Because when we come to chapter 9, it feels super random. I mean, chapter 8 was this monumental thing. Where we want a king like all the other nations around us. Okay, fine. You get your king. And then, in the next scene, what do we expect? Well, we expect Samuel to be going on a hunt for that king. We expect this exciting adventure to happen, right? That's the next chapter. But instead, we're introduced to this random farm boy who's sent on an errand by his dad to look for lost donkeys. Where did this come from? Apparently, by the way, this young bloke has nothing on his mind except for farm matters. On the surface, that seems pretty random, does it not? Seems a bit mundane. But if we dig a little underneath the surface, we soon discover how God is orchestrating this entire event. This guy Saul goes looking for donkeys and comes back with a kingdom, right? And, and not only do we get to see Saul coming back with a kingdom, but we get to get a picture of who this guy is, some of his character traits. So let's pick up. Come with me to chapter 9, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin. His name was Kish. So here's this guy, Kish, and he's a pretty wealthy bloke. Can you see that there? He's upper class. He probably lived in North Avoca, right? He's, he's got some coin, or maybe he lives in, uh, where's the zoo? Where's Taronga Zoo? He lives in Mossman, all right? Best suburb, I reckon. I think it's pretty, that's pretty, I'll never live there, but anyway. So, so, he, so this guy, you know, he, this guy lives, he's, he's wealthy, he's well-to-do, right? He, he, and and he's, got, he's, got, he's got kids, but he's got this one strapping young son who's in his prime. I mean, this guy is impressive. Let me tell you, if there was a Mr. Israel contest, this guy would have won it, right? Look at what verse 2 says. I mean, look at this. He, he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome. Wow. And you, I mean, can you imagine? No one more handsome. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So not only is this guy attractive, but he is literally head and shoulders above everybody else. Too bad they didn't have a basketball team back then, right? I mean, this guy would have been star center. But the point is, the author, he's repeated it twice. This guy catches your eye. He, he looks like a king. 
One commentator put it this way, by human judgment, Saul seemed to be the ideal person, fine and with a potential for anything, particularly as a leader whom others would admire and follow. If a king is to be distinguished by his physical appearance, then Saul is every inch a king. Now, he might look good, but I'm curious how you thought his performance was with the donkeys. Not so great, right? <laughs> I mean, you have Saul and you have his servant. I'm just curious, as, you, as Ralph read that out for us, who, who seemed more resourceful than that? Yeah, it was the servant, right? Who seemed more spiritually attuned? It's not Saul, it's, it's the servant. The servant seems to come up on top with better spiritual insight. In fact, just when Saul is ready to call the whole venture off, it's the servant who saves the day. Look at verse 5. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back. That's my father ceased to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there's a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Now, what on the surface seems sort of random as a going to this suburb and that suburb, when you get to the land of Zuf, immediately our antennas are going up and we're saying, oh! and he mentions the man of God and we go, ooh, we know who he's talking about, don't we? He's talking about Samuel. But Saul is completely ignorant of who Samuel is. It's rather shocking, particularly when you consider, listen, he only lived just a few k's away from this guy. And back in chapter 4, do you remember when it's describing Samuel back in chapter 4? We're told that all of Israel from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south knew that the Lord had established Samuel as a prophet. All of Israel except Saul, who's never heard of him. Apparently, he was too busy becoming outwardly impressive to notice or care about spiritual leaders. And finally, when he, got, when he finally you know, goes to Samuel, and at least when the servant pitches the idea to him, they treat Samuel like a pagan prophet, thinking that they can, be, they can use him. They can you know, pay for it, like a service. You see how like this guy is spiritually aloof, right? They might be looking for donkeys, but we as the readers are sort of left as reading the story wondering who the real donkey is. <laughs> and as they're heading off to go meet this man of God, we're told the day before that Samuel gets a, he gets a text message about it. He would have had his phone on silent in church, no doubt, but he has a, he has a text message. He gets one about it, right? And notice what it says in verse 15. Verse 15, come with me there. This, kid, this is an important text. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, look how providential, this is not random, you see? None of this has been random. Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry 
has come to me. Again, you see God's invisible hand here, providentially orchestrating all these events. But look carefully. I left off on verse 16. If you look at, look at, the, language, look at the language in verse 17, the, the, it describes Saul's career. Look at verse 17. Careful language here. I want you to look at it. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. It's an interesting word, isn't it? I'm about to give you a long, slightly technical quote from a commentator named Robert Bergen. Hang in there. Don't check out. It's, it, it's worth the payoff. All right? So here now, Nige, you can just don't put the cheesy picture up there, but as long as you that, yeah, that, that'll work. Just, just the words will be good. Okay, so this is Robert Bergen. The, remember, he shall restrain my people. Everyone still with me? Everyone still awake? Yes? Okay. God's word to Samuel regarding Saul in verse 17 is filled with irony. The Hebrew verb here as, quote, govern, can equally mean restrain, hold back, hinder, or even imprison. In the majority of its 46 occurrences in the Hebrew text, the word possesses a negative connotation, suggesting imprisonment, silencing, or holding back. In fact, in 1 Samuel 9, 17, it's the only location in Scripture where the word can be taken to mean rule. By employing the verb here, the writer was suggesting that the Lord had determined to use Saul's career as a means of punishing the nation. Interesting. He may be fit, buff, good-looking. He might even be a military sergeant commander type of guy because the Lord's going to use him, as he said, to defeat the Philistines. But when it comes to being king, he's pretty inept. Yeah, he's pretty inept. But that's exactly what the people wanted, is it not? Give us a king. We demand it. And God says, okay, fine. Here is the person you asked for. That's literally what his name means, by the way. Sha'al. Isn't that interesting? Sha'al asked for. You with me? Here's the king. Oh, you want a king? Well, here he is. It's the, after all, it's the king. It's what you wanted, right? It's the king you asked for. But they'll soon discover that their human king and human structures fails. But salvation is only found in God's rule as king, not in human structures. Come with me to verse 18. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, this is funny, isn't it? He doesn't even recognize him. Tell me where the seer is. You're looking at him, right? <laughs> you know? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me the high place for today you shall eat with me and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them 
for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? I think that's an interesting, notice that there? They wanted, they desired, and it was all desirable, all right, in Israel. Is it not for you and for all your father's house? And Saul, what does he say? He says, am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? I mean, Saul just seems confused. Did you notice, though, what tribe he's from? Is it from the tribe of Judah? No. Benjamin. This was the tribe, remember that the book of Judges, there's the civil war that breaks out, and they're hostaging these rapists. Remember that? They're willing to actually go to war over it. Saul's from this tribe, and even closer to home, he's from that exact town in Gibeah. So, if you're going to have a king, though, you just got to have a massive feed, and that's what they do. They have this big spread, and the next morning, Saul is sleeping, and Samuel calls to him, get up, get up. And as they're heading out of the city, he says, oh, hold on a tick. I've got some important news for you, buddy. Look at verse 27. Verse 27. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? You've got to be pretty shocked if you're Saul, right? Again, he's just looking for donkeys. And then all of a sudden he goes, There's, where's the seer? Oh, I've been waiting for you. Yeah, I've, I've got 30 blokes over here. We're going to have a meal together and... And then, hey, before you go, I just got a quick message. Okay, what's the message? Busts out this expensive, you know, essential oil, as it were, or whatever, and pours it on his head. And what are you doing? You're the king. A shocking, right? And, and he goes, you have to wonder, though, if you're Saul going, really? I mean, is this old man kind of lost it a bit? Like... Is this really true? And he goes, and I'm going to prove that this is true. There's going to be three things I'm going to show you that's going to validate what I'm saying. Three things. As you, as you head out from here, Saul, you're going to meet two blokes, two men, at an exact location with a precise message about the donkeys. Okay. Second thing, you'll come near this tree at Tabor, and there'll be three other guys, and they'll be carrying gifts for you. Food, wine, blah, blah. And it'd be, it's, it's very detailed. It's spelled out. It's very specific. And finally, when you go near a Philistine garrison, which I kind of ask yourself, wait, well, why is there a Philistine garrison in the land? Right? But when you go near this garrison, the Spirit of God will rush upon you and you will play Mr. Tambourine Man. Not really, but, but you, will, you will sing, you will dance, you will play a tambourine. Look at verse 6. Right? Verse 6, 
Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and a sacrifice and peace offerings. Listen, this is, you have to, you know those Disney movies where they, you know, uh, Disney does really, well, Disney does a lot of things poorly, especially recently. That's another sermon for another day. But, but um, one of the things Disney does well is they like, to, they like to put little hints in the text, or in, sorry, in the text, in their movies. Uh, like, for instance, Cinderella, right? Cinderella, um, you know, when she's in the slums and she's feeling down and, and the, her wicked stepmother's like, Cinderella! Cinderella, and she goes, I'm coming, I'm coming, and she's heading up the stairs, right? She loses her slipper, right? Oh, oh, she grabs her slipper again, you know? And then where does she, and then she loses, so, so she's, she's down in the dumps, and then where, and then she, coming up, coming up, where does she lose her slipper again, right? At the ball. And then, and then finally, once, you know, the, you know, it's perfect fit and all that stuff, this is the cartoon version at least, she loses her slipper one last time, but on her wedding day, and who puts it on her but the king, right? That's, that's creative. I don't think that's accidental. There's these little hints here where he says, wait for me till I come and make the sacrifice. Do you hear what those ladies said to Saul? Well, you have to wait for him until he makes the sacrifice, then we eat. Wait, wait, wait. That's what we're going to see next week. He doesn't. He doesn't wait for the sacrifice. He takes it in his own hands. That's his downfall. So, Come and begin, verse 7. Now when these signs meet you, do what your finances do, for God is with you. Then go down before me at Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and make a sacrifice, peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Now, I love the English Standard Version. Okay, I honestly, this is, I, I call it, it's the Eastern Suburbs standard or whatever they call it, stupid, but it's the, it's an elect standard version or whatever. It's not perfect, but, but this, I have to say, I think they fumbled the ball on verse nine, if I can dare say that, because I don't like the way they translate this. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. I think that's an unfortunate translation. I really do. Um, because the word here means to overturn. The particular verb is used to describe cities being overthrown. That's what this word means. So I don't think, well, why am I making a big deal of that? Because I don't think, because when you say, when you hear someone say, well, God gave him another heart, what does that sound like? This is Saul's born again moment, right? This is his circumcision of the heart. I don't think I don't think here in this moment that God removed from him a heart of stone and gave him a heart of flesh. I don't think this was his moment of conversion. You with me? Uh, to use modern language, I don't think this was, he was being, I'm not convinced this is the moment he was born again. Because nobody whose heart is circumcised is ever described in the Hebrew Bible as having their heart overthrown. I think what we're meant to take away here is that God overthrew Saul. He overcame Saul. And as a result, in the next verse, when they arrive in Gibeah, look what happens there. Verse 10, when they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him. Same sort of language you get from the book of Judges. This sounds a lot like, like, Sam, like um, Samson, doesn't it? Spirit of God 
rushed upon him. What happens when the Spirit of God rushes upon Samson, right? He tears a lion with his bare hands, raw, right? But this, again, Saul, Mr. Tambourine Man, that's, that's what he does. But, but nevertheless, he, the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? I mean, this is so unlike him. It's, this, is, this is not, this is very unique at this point and in this place. You would not guess that Saul would be among the prophets. It would be like me saying, guys, I've signed up for the next Olympic Games and I'm going to represent America in weightlifting. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't, I mean, I, I know, I'm not, I'm a, I know when you think of Saul, you think of me, I get it, you know, but, um, <laughs> but, like, but you wouldn't think that, right? No. Is Saul among the prophets? I mean, this created such a massive stir. How is this shy country boy caught up in the singing and the proclaiming with these prophets? It was so out of his character. Now look at verse 14, because I, I think we get a sneak peek into Saul's character, actually. Look at verse 14, if you come there with me. Notice Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. Now, Saul's uncle knows who Samuel is. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. Now, that's, that's a half-truth. That's not a lie. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him a thing. Saul, clearly, he's frightened. He's scared. He's operating on his own two cents, on his own, two, on his own wits, on his own instincts. It's going to be a pattern. We're going to see him again and again. Now, here's the deal. When I, um, there was a helpful class I took in seminary, and the, the first class, rather than cover the syllabus, the professor, thank God, I hate when they do that, they didn't, they, he, he didn't cover the syllabus. He said, I'm going to give you my 17 presuppositions of the world, meaning what is his view of the world? You still with me? And it was super helpful. I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this. So that when you, when, when you go, oh, hold on, oh yeah, remember what he said? Remember his 17 presuppositions? Right? I'm going to give you my presupposition of Saul. Because some people think Saul starts well and ends badly. I think Saul's a villain. I think he's meant to be like a foil against David. I could change my mind on that. Maybe you could persuade me otherwise. But as it stands now, I don't think Saul starts well and ends poorly. I think he starts badly and ends badly. I think he's to operate more like a foil. Now, there'll be more on that next week, but let's get on with his public ceremony here. You know, in 1953, when Queen Elizabeth was, if you've seen The Crown, <laughs> when she was anointed, and right? Imagine if, especially if you watch The Crown, I know a lot of that's 
you know, embellished and all that stuff. But, but there's, this, there's this huge lead up to it. No, no doubt, there would have been a massive lead up to it, right? But imagine if they're like, the queen! And when you go to look for her, it's like, try it again, ready? The queen! And someone says, I think she's hiding in her wardrobe. <laughs> You'd be like, is she okay? Like, that's ridiculous. And yet that's what Saul's doing right here. Right? I mean, look at verse 17. Come with me there. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought you up out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Okay, now this assembly at Mizpah is massive, right? Very formal occasion, selecting and discerning who's to be king. Very historic moment. So why, you know, why did Saul kick it off with such a negative note? You know? I mean, what's up with the sour hour, dude? I mean, even if, even if it was God's word, I mean, couldn't it be communicated with a little more sensitivity to the circumstances? I mean, after all, they're king. Not really. Think about it. If Israel has rejected the God who saves them and has not seen that or re repented of it for themselves, can we really expect Saul to plaster a disingenuous smile on his face? Hey, isn't this great? No way. Why? Because salvation, salvation, dear friend, is found only in God's rule as king, not in human structures. And they asked for this king. This is Sha'al, the king that they asked for. And look at this brave and mighty one that they are banking their hopes on, right? Remember what they said earlier, uh, what he said to them? You know, is, aren't you what the hope of Israel, right? Or people, what they've asked for, what they're longing for? Look here in chapter 10. Pick up again in verse 20. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites were t was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there still someone to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. So you just imagine this big commotion at Mizpah, and if you could have a drone flying above it, and you look down, and you see, you know, aren't drones, it's cool, you know, because you can always get an aerial shot, and everyone's kind of scammer, you know, what's going on, worries? and then you just see this guy curled up like this, hiding inside the baggage, and that's your king. And you'd think at that point that someone would say, oh, man, this is, this is a stitch up. Like, well, can we go back to how we had it? But no. Go get the guy. Bring him out here. Come on. Put your arm around him. Look. Verse 23. 
Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, wow, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him the Lord has chosen? There's none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Amazing. I don't think when Saul is hiding himself among the baggage, I don't think that's showing how... Some people say, well, look how humble he is. I don't think so. I, I don't think it's humility. If, if the prophet of God anoints you king, gives you three signs that all come to pass to validate the word of God, you take it. It's not humility to hide yourself among the baggage. It's rebellion. It's arrogance not to take up the role that God has put before you and called you to do. That's not humility. That is false humility, and that is arrogance. God has given you, dear friend, a task. You're to take that up. And for you to say, oh, no, 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 who am I, who am I? That's arrogance. That's not humility. If you're a husband, God has called you to lay your life down for your bride, to lead her, to love her, and to say, well, you know, oh, I'm just going to just be kind of, you know, on the side. That's arrogance. The Lord has called you to lead your family if you are a husband, father, So, after Saul's coordination, Samuel liked to see, maybe he was a, more introverted. Everybody go home, right? And just have enough. Everyone go home. So he sent everyone home, but I want you to see in verse 26. Because verse 26, Saul goes home. You got to see where his home is. I've already hinted at this. He lives in Vegas. And this is where he's from. Look, look at verse 26. If you're, if you're tracking along here, Verse 26, Saul also went home to his home at, where? Gibeah. Who knows what happened in the book of Judges there? The Levite traveling along with his concubine. Unspeakable physical abuse happened. It's Sodom 2.0, right? The fact that Saul is from Gibeah, I think, casts a shadow on this narrative. He's from some awful place where thugs and brutal people live, and this, I think, should inform our reading of chapter 11. So now let's come to 11, because this snake, that's literally what his name means here, then Nahash, or you can say the snake, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. Now, before you, I lose you here, the Ammonites, do you remember? Who was the judge that fought against the Ammonites? Who was the thug that they went and got to go put an end to these guys? It was Jephthah. Do you remember that guy? Jephthah was the guy, and now, maybe 40 years, maybe 50 years later, they want revenge. They want revenge for Jephthah. And, you know, Jephthah, he might have been strong and mighty, but, I mean, what a derelict father, right? I will sacrifice to the Lord whatever comes out of my house. Daddy, daddy, oh, don't, right? And so here are the Ammonites, they're coming back, they want revenge. 
Here's this snake, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash, the Ammonite, said to them, Okay, fine. On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. This is a brutal time, and Israel's faced with a wicked enemy, this snake. And so gouging out their eyes was a sign of hum it's it's shaming them. It's humi it's humiliating. It's and, and so look what happens in verse three. The elders of Jabesh Gilead said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of, of Saul, they reported the matter in his ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now, remember this guy's already been, they've already had coordination, he's already been crowned king. And the next verse here, I find this fascinating, verse five, he's still just a farm boy. <laughs> it's, like he's not, they don't report this as he's sitting in his palace, right, on his throne. No, no, no. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, right? And Saul said, what is wrong with the people? That they are weeping. So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. Very fascinating language there. This is exactly the same kind of language, again, that we see in the book of Judges. And I think the author of Samuel is saying, the Lord is not doing anything through Saul that he ha wasn't already doing through the judges. In other words, I think it's an indication that Israel didn't really need a king. God was delivering them before they had a king. Then look at verse 7. Look what happens. <sighs> Again, I'm not going to talk about the end of Judges, but see if this, is like, see if this rings a bell. Think about the end of Judges. Right? I, well, you probably don't want to. But he took a yoke of oxen, cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers. So, does that sound familiar? Yeah. If you didn't get the Gibeah connection when we read the place name, now it's like the author saying, be sure not to miss this. It's <laughs> It's like he's casting a judge's colored hue over the narrative, you see? Particularly about Saul. The point is, I don't think, I don't think 1 Samuel 11 is an indication. Wow! Everything's great for Israel. They've got this handsome guy named Saul to rule them. No, this guy is conducting himself in a way that's reminiscent of the judges. So we really don't have much improvements. Nevertheless, God is still going to be gracious. Because then if you pick up in verse 8, then he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel, with 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad, you think? Therefore the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies. And they came into the midst of the camp and in the morning, watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left. 
Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Saul shall reign over us? Bring the men that we may, who shall Saul, because um, I didn't read this bit, but what happened is there was obviously people saying, This guy can't reign over us. And they say, Who said that? Bring him here so we may put them to death. And what's interesting is, there's, a, there's two ways to look at this. Saul could be gracious and he goes, no, 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 don't put these guys to death. No one's going to die today. Okay, what a nice king. Yeah, but next week, he's willing to put his own son, Jonathan, to death for a, his own rash vow that he made up. So here's these scoundrels, here's these sons of Belial, really is what it says, who are opposing him and he's... God's anointed, he's the king, and then rather than actually deal with those guys, he's actually willing to just take the arrows and shoot him at his son because of his own rash vow. Again, I don't think, I don't think that we're supposed to see Saul as, I think he's not a Jedi, I think he's a Sith, if you can use Star Wars language. That's for you kids. Because I think there's a point being driven throughout all of this. And that salvation is found only in God's rule as king, not in human structures. So I ask you, dear friend, what are you looking to with the problems that you face? Is it, you're kind of banking your hope that once this problem goes away, you'll be content? Is it that relationship that you're hoping for is going to tick the box for you? Is it the new job? Maybe the new car you're hoping to buy soon? Is it, is it the holiday? Is it the next prime minister? Is it the next coach? Is it the way you hope your kids are going to turn out in a few years? You can only base your hope in an unchangeable God who is gracious and loving, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And we know that because this same God sent his son to provide salvation for all who trust in him. He is the king. Are you looking to Christ for salvation? Are you right now, as you sit there in your chair, are you presently trusting in Jesus alone, only in Jesus alone, for the hope of forgiveness and eternal life? Turn to Christ, dear friend. You know, I'm always sharing the gospel with people during the week. I don't say that because I'm like, but I'm, I, I, I'm always fascinated when people feel like they can just say, ah, it's not for me, I'm not interested. And the deceiving part is, on the short hand, there's no ramifications for someone rejecting Jesus. Like, it's a windy day today, but spring's on its way, and we can all go get coffees and, you know, live in a safe government for now, and et cetera, et cetera. And that person can just, with no sort of physical ramifications, you with me? Ah, whatever. They can be indifferent about it. But that's just the shorthand. That's got a timestamp. One day they'll meet God face to face. And the Lord will have every right to judge them. 
that will be you if you don't turn to Jesus. But you don't have to leave here in stubbornness. You don't have to leave here with excuses. Dear friend, look to Christ right now and be saved. Throw your sin on Jesus. That's the only thing that you bring to salvation is your sin that needs to be forgiven. Throw your sin on the Lord Jesus. Turn to him. He will forgive you and pardon you. And you will be with him for eternity as his child. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we often look to human structures for way too much, for our own contentment, for our own peace. And Lord, we, as your people, turn from that now. Forgive us for the ways that we have just continually trusted in human power structures and not in you as king. Lord, would you not only align our thoughts now, but our hearts and our actions as we walk out of this place and live our lives here on your earth this next week. Lord, we pray for those that have maybe even this morning turned to you in repentance and faith. We pray that that would become evident in the way that they live and we as a church would be able to celebrate that with them. Lord, as we now reflect upon your body that was broken for us, your blood that was shed on our behalf, we pray that you would meet us now in a special way. In Christ's name, amen. So for those of you that are here and you are a Christian, you are a baptized believer, we would love to celebrate this time of communion together with you. Um, but if you're here and that's not you, uh, don't just check out at this time, but reflect upon why not and what's going on. So as the helpers come by to pass out the elements, please hold on to them together. We'll actually take them as one church family. So go ahead and take off all the bits and bobs, and I'll read a passage of Scripture for us.